Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in this week's episode, we continue our discussion about metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, and this time specifically talking about patients that have driver mutations. Um, And guys, we've been talking about the term driver mutations all the time, but just in a few terms, what does that mean and why is that relevant? It's a great question. Basically, a driver mutation is a mutation that's thought to be so important in tumor genesis that it essentially is sufficient to, to drive a malignancy or, or represents a critical point in the tumor's metabolic pathways, where if you were to eliminate that mutant protein from functioning, you could substantially reduce the tumor's growth capacity and, and maybe even kill some of those tumor cells. Yeah, this idea of a driver mutation is so incredibly important for lung cancer. And, you know, I, I think one of their earliest driver mutations that everybody thought about was translocation 922, that BCR able in CML. And now we've just seen an explosion of new drugs that are approved in non-small cell lung cancer for the past five years. And really excited to get into this topic today. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is it is just, it feels like, you know, alphabet soup when we were going through all this information. But listeners, we'll try to break this down for you, give you the fundamentals as always. So stay tuned for our episode, Rolling Now. All right, guys, how are we doing today? Doing pretty good, man. Doing pretty good. I'm, I'm about to finish a month of our inpatient malignant hematology rotation at Rouleau and really just excited to finally be done. I love malignant hematology, but I'm just so exhausted right now. Uh, I get yeah, it. Inpatient malignant heme, that's a, that's a lot. I've been seeing how many bone marrow biopsies are on your schedule, Vivek, and so, you know, I, uh, I imagine that that really does add a lot. But hey... We did talk about what it's like to consent patients on our show and, you know, the whole process of working patients up. And so, you know, maybe it's a good application of a thing or two that we've we've talked about over the last year. 100%. 100%. (laughs) And, you know, the good thing is I'm bulking up my shoulder muscle as I do these bone marrow biopsies. Mm -hmm. We... We do the the hand jam sheety here at Rulo. We don't use the drill. So, yeah, I'm getting a good workout. So, so yeah, I'm happy. And, you know, the the great part about that, Vivek, it's always gain season. So uh, you That's are, true. you're already That's working true. on on the summer bod for, for next year. I'm proud of you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so guys, we're, we're at our, essentially our final episode of uh, non-small cell lung cancer, this time talking about metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with driver mutations. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of excited just to move to the next iteration of, of last, week, last week's episode. Yeah, it's been a huge whirlwind of information, and we've all learned so much through this. So please check out the series, and I'm excited to wrap it up right now. Absolutely. So guys, let's just go ahead and get things started. And so just to remind us, uh, last week we had talked about a patient, and specifically she was a 58-year-old female non-smoker with a 3.4-centimeter left lower lobe adenocarcinoma, a 9-millimeter left upper lobe mass, a left hyalur node, and adrenal mets. And let's say we sent off her molecular testing and she ended up becoming, she ended up 
showing that she was EGFR positive. So how do we approach this patient? This is the first time we've had a patient that has clearly metastatic disease, but now has a, uh, a positive EGFR mutation. So, so what now? One thing I want to add before I ask Dan how he would approach this patient with an EGFR mutation is just to talk in general again, just to remind everybody, in the metastatic setting in lung cancer, these driver mutations are very predictive of response to an oral therapy, and they're also, in many cases, predictive to a lack of response of immune therapy. So in the last episode, we talked about using immune therapy as a first-line measure, For some of these mutations, and I really want everyone to remember EGFR and ALK, in those mutations, it's predictive of a poor response to immune therapy. And in the first-line setting, for the most part, and we'll talk about some of these exceptions, we're looking at doing some sort of an oral agent to treat this patient. So Dan, how do you approach this patient with an EGFR mutation? I always see the EGFR mutation as being a great opportunity, just like you said. If a person has metastatic disease, this means that we could potentially treat them with an oral therapy, a targeted oral therapy that has the chance to provide good response with maybe fewer side effects than you'd expect with conventional chemotherapy. One of the first steps is to understand what mutation this patient has in their tumor. In EGFR, you don't just get a report saying, yes, this mutation is present. You'll also see which mutation the person has. The sort of Important one to think about is uh, the exon 20 insertion, and that's just because it has implications for what you're going to do with the with the patient down the road, but certainly not the most common. The most common mutations that you see are an exon 19 deletion, a, a mutation L858R, also an exon 19, and the uh, T790M mutation in exon 21. It, and so, Dan, so it sounds like the exon 20 is the odd man out. And just for just for our listeners to know, is that because in the exon 20 insertion case, you would not give an oral agent first line, you would actually do something like a chemoimmunotherapy? That's absolutely right. Uh, we know, based on the clinical trials that we've done, that our first line drug for EGFR mutant lung cancer, which is called osimertinib or Tigriso, is highly effective for patients with exon 19 and exon 21 mutations, the ones that we listed. But you're absolutely right. In the case of the exon 20 insertion, this is not a strategy that we're going to use up front. And one of the things that comes up repeatedly, and and this is important as we go through this discussion, is the idea of acquired resistance to an oral therapy, right? We we have a driver mutation and we target it. And sometimes these tumors can evolve and, and acquire some mechanism of resistance. So in in the early days of EGFR mutations, we had a drug called erlotinib, and in some patients, erlotinib would stop working. Dan, can you talk a little bit about what happened in the history behind that? It's actually a really interesting story. With erlotinib, we saw that there was a really good response in the majority of patients that have these uh, EGFR mutations, but there was a subset that wasn't responding, and there was also a subset that would develop resistance and you know lose their response to erlotinib. And we found that a lot of these folks who were either resistant up front or who had lost their response to, eat, to erlotinib therapy had this T790M mutation that I mentioned. And, and one of the stories that you'll hear sort of again and again in dealing with tumors that are driven by these driver mutations is we start out with one or maybe a small handful of drugs that seem to be active against this driver mutation. And then as our understanding of the resistance mechanisms grows, 
we develop new strategies that are rationally designed to either target a specific resistance mutation or target some other pathway that's allowing these tumors to evolve away from responding to, to our first-line drugs. Eventually, as we have these next-generation drugs, we end up trying them in the first line in trials, and then they become the new standard of care. It's a, it's a story that you're going to hear over and over, even in other tumor types. And in this case, we developed, after erlotinib, developed a drug called osimertinib, or Tigriso, which is the one we mentioned before. This drug, now sort of a first-line standard of care, initially was developed as a way around this T790M mutation. And so this is something that we tried initially in people who didn't respond to erlotinib or had stopped responding to erlotinib. But nowadays, it's it's what we go to right off the bat. Yeah, I, I really love that explanation of in this idea that we, as we refine our understanding, and, and that means a patient came in and and let's say they were treated with erlotinib back in the day, and then you resequence their tumor, you actually found that, hey, they have this new mutation, this acquired resistance mechanism, and we developed another drug to overcome that and said, hey, can we push that drug sooner? And it, it's, I think this idea of this osimertinib coming to first-line setting in EGFR lung cancer, everybody should read about it. And the trials that we highly recommend people read is one called Aura 3. And that trial showed that osimertinib was a way to overcome the resistance mechanism in the second-line setting, and it had a superior overall survival to chemotherapy. And then we pushed it into the front-line setting, and that trial is called the FLORA trial. And we highly recommend every HEMOC fellow, anybody interested in this cancer subtype, looks at this trial and reads it. But the bottom punchline here is it basically took patients in the first-line setting and instead of giving them some of the older generations of EGFR drugs, gave this third-generation drug called osimertinib and it was found to be superior to the other EGFR-directed therapies, and that's how it became the first-line standard of care. As you'll hear time and time again and you learn about these driver mutations, there's first-generation drugs, second-generation drugs, third-generation drugs, and one thing to keep in mind is that as we go up in generations, we tend to either target resistance pathways or have more focused targeting on the mutation that's driving the cancer's oncogenesis, and in general, have higher response rates and better CNS penetration. And that's what we found in this FLORA trial. That's awesome. And so just to kind of recap and take a, take a step back, you know, I think from the from what you guys have highlighted so far is already the importance of why we even check molecular testing on all these patients, right? So initially, we had said that it helps us determine whether or not someone would be a good candidate for immunotherapy in the absence of these driver mutations. But once, if they do actually have a driver mutation, looking at the type of driver mutation, and if, if necessary, the subclass, if for lack of a better term, can help us determine what agents can be used in the first line setting. And as you guys said, the, the drug that we currently think of for EGFR first line is osimertinib. And Vivek, you, you made a point about CNS penetration. And our listeners, our suit listeners will probably remember that when we presented this patient last week, I mentioned that she actually had CNS disease, but I took that out for the purposes of conversation just to at least bring up the EGFR mutation. But you kind of alluded to this already. So is it safe to say that osimertinib has good CNS penetration? And so if this patient did have a brain met, this could be a good option? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And many of these small molecule oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors are able to cross the blood-brain barrier and have efficacy 
to CNS metastasis. And in that FLORA trial that we mentioned, that phase three trial that randomized people to the new generation osimertinib against some of the older generations of drugs and found osimertinib was superior, they included patients who had CNS disease. And what they found in the trial was that only 6% of patients with osimertinib had CNS progression. Whereas even with these other drugs that also do have some CNS penetration, that was 15%. So we're looking at 6 versus 15%, which is pretty good, good CNS control and good CNS penetration. So that's awesome for our patient here if she were to present with brain mets up front. But what about someone that is already on osimertinib and then unfortunately later develops CNS disease as a site of their metastatic disease, what do we do in this kind of setting? Yeah, it's certainly an unfortunate situation when you do see someone develop new sites of disease on one of these targeted therapies. But one thing that's very important to understand is, is this the only site where we're seeing new disease, or is there a more widespread progression of this patient's illness? Like are other lesions that we've been tracking growing on therapy? If it's new lesions or progression confined to the CNS, we might want to think about sending them to radiation oncology because, as we talked about in prior episodes, we have really good potential to treat a few lesions in the brain with very targeted radiation, something that we'd call stereotactic radiosurgery. It's basically like SBRT, but for the CNS. So I would definitely want to move towards that, keep the patient on their, their TKI, uh, if if we're only seeing progression in the CNS. So Dan, you're essentially saying that it looks like if, if the brain was the only site of disease, that in theory, this TKI is keeping the rest of their body in check. And so perhaps, you know, why, why take away the drug that's working great everywhere else? Let's just focus on trying to get rid of the new site of disease that doesn't seem to be responding. Basically, you're, you're patching the situation instead of readjusting the entire regimen, correct? That's right. Got it. And and one thing that, that I wanted to kind of piggyback off of that is that, you know, we talked with in our radiation oncology episode that because things like osimertinib have good CNS penetration, when you're doing that radiation therapy, it's it's very important to hold the drug so that way you don't get that synergistic effect and make the side effects of radiation worse. Oh, that's a great reminder, Vivek. I had almost forgotten about that. Now, I guess moving to my next question then, and, and again, Dan, you kind of brought this up already, but if, if the patient had progression of disease in several sites, then what do you do? So let's, just, let's say it was the brain or, you know, there's a liver met, there's a new lesion in the lung. What do we do then? I think in that case, it gets challenging. It really depends on what center you're at. And if you're at a large academic center like Rural University, we often re-biopsy and resequence their molecular mutation. We'll talk with Jack West in the next episode about what he thinks about that and combining different targets and things like that. But really, in many of those cases, if you had overt progression of disease, you can consider a couple of things. If it's small, limited areas of progression, you could consider a consolidative radiation approach where you spot radiate different areas like you would in the brain for the last example. If there's pretty large progression of the disease, you know, lots of liver progression of disease, things like that then we may actually think, hey, we need to do something different. Maybe this oral TKI has lost its response. There's been an escape mechanism for the way that this drug used to work, and now the tumor is just resistant to it. 
And in that case, we would switch to something like a chemo or chemo immunotherapy approach. Generally, for something like an EGFR-ALK mutation, we would just switch to chemo without IO because we know these patients have a lower predictive response to therapy with IO, so you just switch to chemotherapy, let's say. And then comes the question, should you continue the oral targeted agent with chemotherapy? And that's a big question. We know for sure you do not want to do immune therapy with targeted chemotherapies. And this is really important. If you have a patient and you're still waiting on the molecular testing results, but they need chemo because they have large burden of disease, do not start immunotherapy because there is a huge risk of pneumonitis and hepatitis and some of these bad immune therapy-related side effects if you do a targeted therapy and immune therapy at the same time. So in this case, when we think about, well, what about chemotherapy? It's okay to do chemotherapy, and it's really provider-dependent on whether you should continue that oral TKI or not. One theory is, well, if you have very good CNS control, maybe that oral TKI is going to keep the CNS in check. And for the rest of the disease in the body, we use chemotherapy, for example. So there's no right or wrong answer. There's a explosion progression phenomenon that can happen if you immediately stop an oral TKI agent when you're starting somebody on chemotherapy. And the idea is that it was keeping disease in check. And right when you stopped it, you let the foot off the brake and the disease has has a, a large amount of progression. So that is a phenomenon that has been reported. I don't think it's really well fleshed out in the literature. So I would say in general... It's expert opinion decision on what to do there, but you are not doing TKI and immune therapy. You, you, if you're continuing the TKI, you're doing chemo, and if you have an EGFR or ALK mutation, those have a low predictive response to immune therapy. So as is the case, a situation like this is complicated, and for the purposes of a fellow, I mean, obviously you're going to talk to your attending, but perhaps this may even need a tumor board discussion, just because it seems to be a very nuanced discussion. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Okay. Well, this is this is great, and so, you know, let's let's move on to the ALK mutation, which is the other one that you had mentioned, and let's say the same patient, so fifty-eight year old, three point four centimeter left lower lobe adeno, nine millimeter left upper lobe mass, left hilar mass, adrenal meds, and this time her molecular testing showed that she was ALK positive. So, as compared to the EGFR mutation, what's your approach in this situation? So. Much like the story that we had in EGFR, we did have a, a drug that we used to use all the time for ALK-mutated lung cancer, and that, that OG drug was called crizotinib. It has, turns out, a pretty lousy side effect profile, and ever since then, we've had a variety of newer generation drugs come out. So nowadays, we kind of say it's, it's crazy to start crizotinib. That's not a drug you want to reach for anymore. The newer generation drugs include a drug called electinib. And being not really a, a solid tumor person, that's the one I always think of because it sounds like ALK. So it's it's a little bit a little bit cheap. There are other drugs out there that you can also use, but electinib is usually my favorite for that reason. And Viva, can you tell us a little bit about sort of the data behind that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think at ALK, the key thing is there's a drug called electinib, which is a very important one to remember and used very frequently. There's also something called brigatinib and lorlatinib. And this is alphabet soup, so that's why we're sticking with electinib. But the bottom line is, all of these are different generations of these ALK oral inhibitors. Crizotinib's first generation, we always said better response rates with, with higher generations and better CNS penetration. And all of the studies in the ALK mutation setting compared a new drug to crizotinib. 
So it wasn't looking at like a new ALK inhibitor to chemo. It was new drug versus crizotinib. And two really important trials for electinib is the ALEX trial and J-ALEX trial. And both of those are important that led to electinib being one of the first-line options. But like I said, there's many first-line options in this case. And the key thing with that one is the really drive-home point here, the CNS progression for those who got electinib was only 12% versus 45% for those who got crizotinib, that first generation, just highlighting the fact that you went from like, you know, close to 50-ish percent to about 10% CNS progression with a higher generation, a newer generation ALK inhibitor, which just shows that key concept and, and just really illustrates that. Also in that trial, their response rate was around 80%. So you're getting good responses, you know, eight in 10 chance that the patient's going to have some tumor shrinkage with this drug. So it has good activity. And, you know, we look at things like progression-free survival. So how long will it take the, the patient to progress? It's, it's around 35 months. So you're nearly going three years without progression with this oral therapy in, in the median setting. So obviously there are patients who progress sooner and patients who progress later, but still that's very good, particularly in the in the metastatic lung cancer setting. So I think that's an important one that really got electinib to be approved. That's awesome. And and so similar question to last time, you know, you already mentioned great CNS penetration. So so we're aware of that, similar to the EGFR. But in this case, you know, last time we for EGFR we talked about how if someone seems to not be doing well in osimertinib and they have widespread disease or progression of disease, we consider switching them over to like a chemotherapy. Is that the same case for ALK? ALK is really interesting in that we have a lot of studies saying that, well, if you progress on this ALK inhibitor, go to a different one. And there's all the way up to, in some patients, they could get a first, second, or third line ALK inhibitor. For the most part, patients are getting a first line ALK inhibitor followed by a second line. And when you're in that second line setting, we said, hey, in the first line setting, we're looking good. Response rates in that 80%-ish range. Response rates drop significantly. So we're not having the same amount of efficacy, but we still do see some efficacy and we can spare some patients' chemotherapy by switching to another ALK inhibitor. So it's, it is different than EGFR in that in, in these settings, you could instead just go to a different ALK inhibitor instead of going straight to chemo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really great point. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm glad that we are discussing that distinction because, again, these are two of the common mutations that we're seeing, yet, you know, patients with progression of disease, in theory, we have slightly different approaches to how we think about them. So it's just good for us to keep that in mind. Now, you know, guys, I, whenever I look at the lectures that we get at Rouleau about a lot of these driver mutations, like I said in the beginning, it just seems like alphabet soup. I mean, the list seems to go on and on about possible other mutations that could be causing problems here. And so what is your advice to how to handle this? I mean, at this point, it's it's like surfing, like you just are trying to stay ahead of the wave. And I think the only real way to do that, just because we're constantly learning so much more about new driver mutations, is to just go go to your resources, go to a trusted guide that can sort of help you through some of these less common mutations. We'll have a link in our in our show notes to the NCCN guidelines that have a sort of comprehensive list of all the driver mutations that we can target and that we know about. A few of those that, that you're going to see for lung cancer, the ROS1, ROS1 rearrangements, also targetable with, with TKIs. KRAS G12C mutation, That's that one's notable in that we have a targeted agent for it, but it's not approved for first line. And then mutations in MET, in RET, 
There's a BRAF mutation, V600E out there, and then NTREC gene fusion. Uh, that, that one I think is particularly interesting just because you see it in a lot of different tumors. And unlike other mutations, uh, it seems to be universally targetable. It seems to have universally good response no matter what tumor type you see it in which is sort of fascinating. That's not the case for all of these mutations. A BRAF mutation in one disease is not the same as a BRAF mutation in another. But anyway, like you said, it's alphabet soup. Like this is, this is way too much to, to just list and commit to memory all the time. But just make sure you're going to those resources, talking to your attendings, and, and, uh, and trying to understand what the latest is. Yeah, and, and I think one of the key things to remember is really just knowing which of the following instances where a TKI is not used in first line. So there are certain mutations where we don't necessarily use TKI in the first line. And we talked about a couple of those. And I think one really important one to remember is EGFR exon 20 insertion. I think that can trip you up because we talked about, hey, we have EGFR mutations. Look at all the drugs we have. Exon 20 insertion EGFR is not a first line TKI option. There's a second line option for that. And like Dan said, KRAS G12C and HER2. And those are three to kind of keep in the back of your mind. But if there's one that I would remember, because I think with the other ones, you're really going to be looking it up in the in the NCCN, is remembering that of the EGFR mutations, exon 20 insertion is the odd man out where you'd want to do a chemo immunotherapy approach up front. And I made that mistake last year in lung cancer clinic, because, and I actually didn't know that there were all different types of exon mutations in, in different locations. And so I wish I had a podcast like this around a year ago, but alas, now now our listeners won't make that same mistake. So, so guys, I, I think a, a great way to kind of close out this discussion is just how we generally approach using these tyrosine kinase inhibitors and TKIs. All these drugs fit under the category of tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So it just seems that, you know, we're using drugs that are preferentially binding one type of receptor over another. I suspect that their side effect profile could overlap the way, so, which also means that the way that we counsel our patients overlap. So when you guys are counseling somebody about a new TKI, what is your general approach? So I'll start off with just the idea of who do we test for these mutations in? And I think it's really important that you have a new patient in your clinic as a fellow. How am I going to counsel this patient? And for patients who are non-smokers, who have a lung adenocarcinoma, they're at the highest chance for having one of these targetable mutations. But it's important to counsel these patients that we are cautiously optimistic that you'll have one of these mutations. It's still not the norm, right? Of the people who are going to have the mutations, that's the highest likelihood. But we have to be cautiously optimistic. And when we start patients on these therapies, we talked about the great responses, the newer generations have good CNS penetration. But I think it's important when we counsel patients to still let them know this is palliative therapy, that there are patients who will progress. And we're hoping that they will be in the hyper-responder category. But even in those situations, we have to tell patients that this is really focused on improving your quality of life and quantity of life but these aren't necessarily magic cures for your lung cancer. So I just wanted to start it off with that and let Dan wrap it up with some some good high-yield points for TKI therapy. That was a great summary of how to sort of responsibly counsel your patients on, on setting expectations for this therapy. And all I'll add is that when you're dealing with these oral small molecule inhibitor drugs, you want to look for patterns. You'll notice that all the drugs we talked about today and in general, these small molecule inhibitor drugs 
tend to have the suffix nib on them, osimertinib, electinib, capamatinib, uh, uh, that sort of thing. So if you see that, you can think, okay, this is probably a small molecule inhibitor drug. The side effect profile for a lot of these drugs is pretty similar, and that's fatigue, uh, GI side effects, like GI upset, and skin and nail changes, probably the most common. And if you think about these drugs targeting the EGFR pathway or its downstream effector molecules, that is the epithelial growth factor receptor. Uh, so, you know, where, wherever you have epithelium could be collateral damage. That's sort of skin, GI lining, that sort of thing. Rarely, uh, some of these drugs can also cause a pneumonitis. So uh, just want to be checking on a patient's pulmonary status. Of course, you're going to want to do that in a patient with lung cancer anyway, but uh, definitely something to keep in mind. that There can be a pneumonitis that can happen with uh, the EGFR drugs in particular. And Dan, I wanted to re- repeat that. You said fatigue, GI, derm. And I think if we just remember fatigue, GI, derm, those are the most common side effects when it comes to these therapies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That, that's, a, that's a really great cheat sheet. So, so uh, general counseling for patients in terms of side effects for TKIs, fatigue, GI, derm. Uh, I feel like this is going to be our, our new little uh, mantra for... Uh, it's like the, uh, uh, the infections medication stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's right. the exact same thing that I'm thinking about. Throwback to thrombocytopenia in the early days. Uh, and, and, so, and then the other thing I think that is really good for us to remember as, as general takeaways because again, a lot of this is things that we're going to have to look up inevitably until unless you do this regularly, is if you have um, progression, a, a single side of progression, let's say in the brain or some other organ, you can consider uh, definitive radiation uh, while continuing the patient on their TKI because it seems to be handling their, their disease in other parts of the body quite well. However, in situations where there are multiple sites of progression, you want to consider maybe switching them over to chemotherapy with the exception of the ALK mutations, where likely you may switch them to a different different class. Is, is that a good general summary and good general approach? 100%. That was great. And I just want to reiterate one more thing, and that's telling these patients, you know, just because they have a targeted therapy, still knowing that this is a palliative intent therapy. And I think I have struggled a lot as a fellow figuring out how to actually counsel somebody for one of these targeted therapies because you think, oh, CML, imatinib, that patient would be essentially cured of their CML, right? But it's just not the same in lung cancer. We've made great advancements, but we're still in a palliative setting. I will say when we did one of our first episodes for for lung cancer, I think it was Dan that made a comment about how cool it is that in our lifetime, we can still be talking about patients with metastatic disease having curative options uh, in in some situations but but also what an exciting time for us to be able to say that there are oral options for treatment that keeps people's disease in check for for years when you know looking back you know a, a decade or, or so lung cancer survival rates were abysmal and so it is it is just such an exciting time to be a hematology oncology fellow and you know I'm really really excited to see kind of the future of where this goes and, you know, as foreshadowing, I'm also really excited to have Dr. Jack West on our show next week. And he is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to lung cancer. And I think it'll be such a nice sense of confidence for ourselves, because after all these episodes, all of us should be able to keep up with those high-level conversations. But also, I think it'll round out our discussions about lung cancer very, very nicely. Yeah, totally agree. And and 
I think that is the big thing. It's crazy that in our lifetime we can say we can cure some patients with metastatic lung cancer. And just want to remind those everybody that's oligometastatic disease. Like you have one brain met, but you have a localized lung cancer. You can do uh, radiation to the brain and surgery to that lung cancer site and cure the patient or do surgery to both places or any combination of that that you talk about in a multidisciplinary tumor board. And it's just amazing that we can do that. And Jack West really tells us the history behind that and when he was a fellow. So really stay tuned for that next episode. It's awesome. All right, guys. Well, I think that wraps up another great episode of The Fellow on Call. Uh, any final thoughts or, or statements? Science is the best. Let's, uh, let's keep making progress and, and keep curing more disease. We're going to be back to benign hematology soon, everybody. So just stay tuned and then we'll go to malignant heme. So just wait. Can't wait. All right, guys. Well, until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.